Hello and welcome to Type 1's Talk Sport, the podcast hosted by the BDA Sports and Exercise Diabetes Subgroup. Our aim is to make sports and exercise nutrition education more accessible to people living with type 1 diabetes and to all those who support them. During these episodes, we as dietitians will share our expert nutrition knowledge with you and speak to other experts in this field. We will also share inspiring stories from athletes and individuals participating in different sports and activities, exploring how they are navigating their type 1 diabetes alongside everything else. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review, subscribe for upcoming content and follow us on social media. Well, thank you so much, Paula and Gavin, for joining me today on Type One's Talk Sports. Really excited to have you both on. I'm not going to steal your thunder, so if it's okay, you two both happy to sort of talk about yourselves and introduce yourself and some of the reasons why we've invited you to speak on the podcast episode today. Well, my name is Paula. I'm a dietitian, pediatric diabetes dietitian, currently living in the UK, but originally from Costa Rica. I have been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes for around 25 years, and uh, I have a special interest in sports and other topics about diabetes and healthy lifestyles. And I do a lot of work with Gavin with our charity, Diathlete, Live Diabetes. And yeah, I'm happy to to be here to, to share with you a little bit about ourselves and our work. Yeah, so as Pau said, I'm a rubber half. I live with type 1 diabetes as well, so a lot of diabetes in our lives. Unlike Pau, I don't work in the healthcare side of it. As such, I actually do work for Medtronic in their EMEA diabetes team. But yeah, I was diagnosed in my childhood and for some reason in my life, sports was a big deal growing up and found myself running marathons and becoming kind of like a, a type one Forrest Gump. And that kind of ended up bringing me around the world a little bit. And I met Pal through that journey. Oh, wow. Amazing. Oh, thank you for that. So, and um, yeah, tell me a bit more then. I don't know if to start with maybe Paula, do you want to start like, you know, what was your diabetes journey and how did it sort of happen for you? If you're comfortable to talk about it, that'd be great if you just share a bit more about that. Yeah. So I was diagnosed when I was four. And of course, in Costa Rica, I was born in Costa Rica, which is a country in Central America. And of course, very different to the UK healthcare wise, it's a bit behind, it's still a good country to be in, in terms of access to insulin, we have free insulin, and free, we can test our glucose levels for free, but we don't have the latest technologies, we need to pay it out of our pockets, even the insulin, the analog insulins, we need to pay the insulin out of our pockets. So when I was diagnosed, my parents didn't know what what was diabetes, what what was type 1 diabetes. So they, after some years, they decided to take diabetes as an opportunity. They realized that there was no support groups in Costa Rica for them to see other parents and talk about what was living with it. So my mom and my dad decided to, to do an association for families living with type 1 diabetes. And also a food business for healthy desserts. And at that time, we needed to have all sugar-free. There was no carb counting. So uh, they still have, that. that's what they live off at the moment. They have this, this business of sugar-free, gluten-free products in Costa Rica. And yeah, and that passion of my parents to help also grew up on me. I decided to be a dietitian to help other people with type 1 diabetes. And, and also that led me to, to travel around the world, to teach about nutrition and to, to do camps, diabetes camps. So we did the first diabetes camps in Costa Rica for the last 10 years. We've been doing them. So yeah, I think diabetes in my case has been like an opportunity to help others, to, to also advocate for others that don't, that don't have a voice. And yeah, and that led me to the UK, and <laughs> which was one of my dreams to be here and to to work here 
in a summarized way. <laughs> well, also as part of my graduation project for my uni, it was to to do a book about type one and sports because there was a lot of misinformation amongst healthcare professionals. So I remember since I'm young, I liked a lot of sports disciplines, such as I, I used to dance in a dance company, do boxing, martial arts, and it was always myself that needed to experiment to see how my glucose levels would react to sports, to different types of sports. So I thought, well, I'm going to do a book for other healthcare professionals. And I was able to publish this book. It's, it's in Amazon. It's in Spanish. <laughs> and I was able to, to go and train like fitness professionals, in gyms, dietitians, doctors of all kinds in public and private hospitals. So that was like, I think, one of my biggest achievements as, as a type one and, a, and as a dietitian. Oh, that sounds amazing. Well, talk me through and maybe some more of these sports you used to do then as a child and what brought you into sports and obviously your family seems to be quite food orientated but yeah. they, there's quite a lot there dancing boxing martial arts and how did you manage that with your when diabetes yeah so in terms of dancing that was the one that I did throughout my whole high school I used to do different types so I, I remember that I used to after school I used to go for the rest of the day and do maybe sometimes even three different types of dance it could be like jazz hip hop tap so I remember that my glucose levels were always different depending on the day if we were practicing for the end of year presentation and I was quite nervous if I was doing a solo that nervousness used to increase my glucose levels so I remember I I didn't need to eat much and and that's something that the doctors always used to say like just eat eat quite a lot because you're going to have a hypo if you do an activity and that's not the, the truth there are some different types of exercise that would increase your glucose levels and that was the case for me whilst I was dancing and similarly when, when I started martial arts it was quite intense. And as you may know, intense activity can increase your glucose levels. So I, I used to have an insulin pump at that time. And I used to take it off because it was quite uncomfortable, but that always used to lead to high glucose levels. So it was a very learning curve. And then I used to do rowing too. And with rowing, it was very much cardio. So it was very good for the glucose levels. I didn't need to, to do much, just have my meal beforehand, reduce my insulin, and it would be fine. So I think that was the easiest one for me. We're with the dancing, like I guess it's I'm being from this side of the Atlantic <laughs> compared to the other side of the Atlantic, where the you know the Latinas they they they're born and they're they're kind of moving like this as they come out in birth, whereas <laughs> we're kind of born like the Tin Man in Wizard of Oz, and we, you know it's just not happening. But I guess it's like coming from limited experience, of course, is in, in moving moving the, the right way. You know, I, the type of dance has a big impact. Yeah, definitely. And like running, you know, the type of movement it's going to have an impact. So I guess that was a hard one to kind. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's all like a learning from experimenting. And of course, my mom used to be like the one trying to help me all the time. And then we used to write down everything that we used to do. Like today, if it was hip hop, what type of snack would I have? What insulin reductions? And it was all ourselves trying to figure it out. Hip hop. Yeah. How do you dance to hip hop? <laughs> okay <laughs> did you have different settings for the different you know these days you can put exercise settings there's so much you can do what were you doing yeah so i i used to have like one of the first pumps and i you, you could just use temporary basal but when i just when i was doing martial arts i had the pump and then i took it off because i didn't like it i use a pump now but at that time i was like no i don't like the pump so i decided to stop and i used to take it off completely which was a bit bad so so yeah 
I, I used to do a temporary basal beforehand and use different settings, play around. But I think at that time I was more interested on performing and not so much on like what to do with, with my pump. So yeah. Interesting. Like you say, it's all about just experimenting and learning, isn't it? It's that constant learning. And then what about yourself, Gavin? How how did your sort of type 1 diabetes journey come about? What's the sort of origin story? Well, my immune system got a bit confused and attacked myself. So yeah, I guess I was eight years old, so I mean, powers four. And mm-hmm. I think maybe the thing in common there is that it's heavy on the parents at, at that age, even double the age of what, what power was at four. And so mine was the turn of the millennium, January 2000 is where I got diagnosed. I was off sick from school throughout that, that kind of Christmas period, just before the Christmas holidays in 1999. So the first thing I really remember is how long it took to actually get diagnosed diagnosed was over a month and then obviously it's the worst time of year to try and book in a GP appointment as well mm. and it was in the news it was about the world ending you know it was like this millennium bug and and you know, there's gonna be a computer virus and at the time there was a flu virus and mm-hmm. my mum my dad my sister all got it and they were off of work and off of school and of course the symptoms happened and I, and I got diagnosed and I always had a real passion at sports I think for me it was you know there was never a day where I wasn't active as a child I mean what child is act- is not active you know there always there's something going on and for me it was really really sports associated I, I loved football anything really rugby cricket all those all the sporty games you could play but particularly football and so one of my earliest memories really was in the hospital and asking when I got the opportunity to ask the doctor at the time you know if there's anything to ask him about this condition his diagnosis and it was can I still play football can I still play for the best football team in the world one day Crystal Palace and debatable but there, there wasn't any real positive that's what I remember there wasn't a positive energy about how that was responded to everything seemed really clinical everything was were saying about well there's a risk it was kind of turned into like about a lecture around worst case hypos and stuff like that which obviously as a child you just want to be as less clinical as possible you just want to get out there and get on with it and know that you know you can do the things you you enjoy and I found that that was lacking perhaps there wasn't as much research and studies of course back then as there as there is today but yeah it was it was very clinical and not so related to an eight-year-old in terms of the diabetes talk and I think that's been maybe the bee in my bonnet ever since to some regards of, of what I've gone on and done but yeah I had to learn and sometimes learn the hard way about the impact of, of type 1 diabetes and what it can have in sports. I found the opposite. I think a lot of my young years playing football and probably the more my body grew, um, I particularly recall it when I started playing to semi-professional level in my teenage years. Obviously, my body's bigger there and there's more nerves perhaps going on than there was on a on an amateur level where you know, I played most of my youth. My levels were flying high. You know, I wasn't, and, and throughout my youth, it'd been a case of watch out for the hypo, have something on the side, you're going to go low. But the more I kind of measured my blood sugars, which was just just a couple of finger pricks a day at the time. Yeah, I, I kind of found that the levels were even sometimes up in the 20s in terms of minerals and stuff. So it was, yeah, I had to learn from that. If I really wanted to perform my best, I needed to take more attention to my diabetes. And I think at that age, teen years in particular, you're you're most furthest away from, from wanting to do that. So yeah, I think I had to juggle that. That was probably one of my harder periods in, in living with diabetes. And then shortly after that, I kind of found a new passion in diabetes itself, which came about quite randomly. You know, my life, as I say, was always football, sports, football, football, football. But I realized having gone through that period of not accepting diabetes, kind of wanting to distance myself from anything to do with it in school. 
I kind of realized that actually I had a, you know, it, it wasn't separate from me. And I kind of came to terms with that and even embrace it in some ways. I think I played the D card more than anybody else in the world when I was in school and mm-hmm. continuously getting out of lessons or whatever else I was trying to do. And for some reason, the teacher's never picking up that I conveniently came back one second before the pip rang for the end of the lesson. Every single hypo was the same. So yeah, I kind of found, I went through that period, but then I found that I actually, I could, I could influence people in a good way or I could support people. I had, I had a role to play even as, a, as just not a medical professional but a person with it and, and I think that first really came about for me when I was just on a school trip I was in sixth form and a teacher came and got me and said you know there's this kid that's crying his eyes out I think he'd do well if you, if you kind of met him and had a talk with him so turned out obviously the, the child who was maybe year seven he had type 1 diabetes he just had a hypo and he was having a big tantrum afterwards really crying his eyes out saying how much he just hated diabetes why me that kind of vibe which I related to because I was there when I was you know just a few years before so I think that kind of have set me on this journey of more what can we do to make it more positive and actually encourage people a little bit more with this diabetes talk that goes on and yeah shortly after that I ran my first marathon and that became a thing of mine for the next number of years and I really got I mean running marathons and even just jogging and stuff was never really a big interest to me because it wasn't a competitive sport but then I think I found diabetes was my competitor when I first started to run and that kind of then gave me an interest I competed with myself almost to say right can I get a good blood sugar level and that made it kind of interesting and yeah these challenges just got bigger and bigger I ran 29 miles and I ran I don't know 60 odd miles around the Isle of Wight and then I went for John O'Groats to Land's End and then technology in this time was starting to come around as well and so my my diabetes treatments if you like started to change step by step and doors opened I met other people around the world I did, I did more challenges and uh, then got power involved in one and mm-hmm. yeah one thing led to another and now here's my wife <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that sounds amazing. So how did you two meet? Or Paula being a dietitian, did you sort of end up sort of telling Gavin what to do and being like, you need to do this or... You you always tell me what to do. (laughs) It hasn't changed. How did it? Yeah, what happened? Yes, so we met, we were both part of the Young Leaders Program from the International Diabetes Federation, like around seven years ago. So Gavin was represented the UK and I was representing Costa Rica. So we met in Canada in one of these trainings where they teach you how to do projects to help people with diabetes in your country. So we met there and then we were both doing like similar stuff around the world and and we kept meeting each other in, in these activities like camps and and congresses and and things like that and then as soon as I graduated and I published my book I was like I really want to say that okay I can publish this book but I've put this on practice on someone and Gav was going to do his 25 marathons in a month to raise funds for for diabetes so I came I was like okay I can go for one week I can tell you what to do and then you can put it in practice and we can we can do a, a a case study on this and 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 then I was like well no I need to stay for the whole time so I stayed for for the whole it was like around a month mm. and then we went for through all of the UK and Ireland to doing the marathons I was following him he, he CGM all the time and and basically putting in practice all the theory that I learned and of course uh, as a healthcare professional you realize that the books are not <laughs> like the books tell you something you can't take that as a base but things don't work that way all the time so mm. so yeah it was a very big learning curve for for us and yeah yeah amazing I mean what brought this on then Gab what was the 25 marathons in one month you didn't sort of say what brought that on was that you said to raise awareness for diabetes charity yeah I mean good question why would you want to do that I think at that point I'd run a lot of challenges already I mean my first one was I think I literally a week after my 17th birthday I'd you know done my first marathon so it became a thing of mine back then and that was like 2008 kind of time and yeah these challenges as I say they, 
it just grew and it got to the point where I thought, well, I wanted to do John O'Groats to Land's End. And, and that was in 2013. I did that. 2018 is when we did this 25 marathons with a CGM and, and looking at technology a bit more and listening to a dietitian, which mm-hmm. obviously does help a lot. But I think when I did the John O'Groats to Land's End one, it was a case of I'm just trying to fundraise. I'm just trying to make a difference without really knowing why or, or how. It's just sort of something that I took a buzz from and I just wanted to explore myself, if, if anything, and get that chip off my own shoulder. I think in that journey of John O'Groats to Land's End, I realised maybe the power of peer encouragement and engagement. And that was because lots of families, mums and dads and, you know, children with diabetes in particular, were coming out and running with me or meeting me on these routes. I didn't have any money or anything. So it was just a case of, you know, who's in this local town that has diabetes or something in common or wants to get involved. So it was like this really community-based challenge that you know, got me through, literally. And I think in that, I really saw for perhaps the first time that these children were seeing diabetes differently. I think that's the real thing that sparked something in, in me was that when I got to that finish line, or when I got to that start point, and I had an Olympic torch from actually having the honour of doing that the year before at the Olympics, you know, I was giving them to the children to just to, to be my kind of flag bearer and, and start the run or finish it for me. And I saw like, you know, you wouldn't, the kids didn't want to go initially. Mum, dad made them be there. And they were like, oh, don't, I don't want to do anything to do with diabetes. And yet then they were, their eyes lit up when they held that torch, they, they, when they they met you know, me as someone with diabetes. And I think that's what we all have in common. If we can kind of overcome our own hurdle first and foremost, which is what I had to do perhaps in those years before, we start to actually then positively connect with others and, and help them get on their right road where they can help others as well. So I think I had that journey in doing that challenge. And so I didn't really have any intention to do bigger challenges than that to, to some extent, but I started to do international work after that. And I started to team up with organizations like in Costa Rica and, and other parts of the world where, you know, they were really, where diabetes care was a bit different. And I felt like I needed to raise some funds and we were starting this new idea, which is now a League of Diabetes Global Network. So I, I felt like we needed to raise some funds to make some things happen there. So that was what I, I was doing it for. I was like, right, let's get back in the ring, so to speak, to, to try to see we can raise a, raise some money to, to bring we, we did a training at the end of that year we brought some people from different organizations across I don't know about 10 different countries maybe there was about 20 people in that in that training that came together and we had developed these workshops and different ways of making community and, and education through kind of game-based learning so we were kind of training that but it needed some mon- money to happen and so yeah I found myself out there running running some marathons again and this time I thought I'll get a dietitian to guide me through it. I think that also is one of the things that you usually, well, first of all, when I asked the same thing, like, why would you, this is maybe not as safe, like it's not recommended to do 25 marathons in a month. But one of the things that Gavin always faced was like, oh, you cannot do that because you have type 1 diabetes. It's very risky. Then the health, like body risks and injuries and stuff is more like the type 1 diabetes. Was that okay? No. And you still face healthcare professionals that were like knowledgeable about diabetes saying I'm not going to help you because this is risky so I think that it was very important to kind of work together on that and say okay what are the safety measures that we can take to do this and finish it and motivate people so yeah I feel like it's quite inspiring to know that people are doing more than the usual stuff in terms of sports and we still have people thinking that because we have type 1 diabetes we wouldn't be able to do anything like that super inspiring like it sounds amazing like 25 in a month and you know the fact that you're not letting 
and diabetes hold you back. It's one of the reasons we do the podcast. We want to be encouraging people to be active, be engaged, and someone's got to do it and then, you know, see what happens, right? <laughs> so how did you two manage it? What did you learn? What were some of the dietary strategies maybe that you put in place over that month? What sorts of things did you explore? Because I guess we've got a dietitian who's now, you know, both, you know, I'm so impressed with all this international work and the work you've done. I can see how you've both met and Obviously, sport, diabetes, there's a lot bringing you together, isn't there? That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe to begin is for anybody, I think diabetes is so individualized for each person to the next. So I think really we're powerful. So knowing that as a type one herself and, you know, we, me and her, we have different insulin ratios, et cetera. So I think she looked at my history first and foremost. And, you know, how did I get on? And yeah, maybe fortunately in a crazy way, I'd done those past challenges. So we had a rough idea. What we didn't have so much is that recorded because when I did John O'Groats of Land's End, you know, five years before that, I was finger pricking. And now where's the data? You know, I had some numbers. I counted the amount of hypos I had. I didn't count the amount of hypers I had. I just had an knowledge that actually I had a lot more highs than I did lows in that month that I was out running there. And I only had seven lows, but yeah. So we didn't, we had limited information if you like, but we had the personal experience. So she kind of had to take that information from me and think, okay, this is how we're going to perhaps plan around what decisions we're going to take with the different ratios I was on, being on multiple daily injections at the time as well and, and considering that. Yeah. And, and of course, he was first seeing Gavin as a person that was going to do an ultra endurance challenge. He mm-hmm. was not Gavin as a person with type 1 diabetes. So it's like two different areas that then you need to, at the end, put together. So as a dietitian, you need to find, okay, how many calories? you're going to be losing how do we make it the recovery successful successful recovery because then after each marathon you need to get up the next day and do another marathon so how would he perform okay because at the end it was not about timing it was about finishing fine and avoiding hypos and hypers and avoiding injuries so basically all the nutrition plan was towards that, towards Gavin as an athlete running marathons. And then we need to get our knowledge on diabetes management in exercise. So of course, that was super interesting. I think it wouldn't be so nice if, if Gavin didn't have diabetes. So mm-hmm. so yeah, it was also like we were, because Gavin was with Levermere and Novorapid. So it was like two injections of Levermere a day, one in the morning and one in the night. So we were trying different adjustments. Of course, before we did some half marathon and a marathon in Costa Rica. So I started learning how his body was reacting to the running and different approaches in terms of insulin reduction. <laughs> so much stuff. And there is so many things to consider also hypertension, supplementation. It was one of the most things, I think things that are so similar to reality that was that we were, every marathon was in a different place and we were staying with different people. Yeah. So sometimes we were staying in hotels, sometimes we were staying in people's houses and they were the ones providing the food. So of course I had my super extra meticulous calculations of the calories that he needed to eat and the carbs and the protein they were like we have salad today <laughs> so i was like ah so he needs the carbs to recover and we of course because it was going to be a whole month we could carry so much right we had all of course glucose and different hyper traits and, and things for during the marathons but there was not much that we could carry after for after the marathon so we needed to kind of adjust to all that is basically reality with type 1 diabetes you can calculate everything but then you can face okay no this is 
not everything went different, completely different to what you were planning. So it was like also like being patient with that process and, and being aware that it would sometimes not, not happen. But still, even though everything was so different and we weren't in a lab, we were outside a lab, we were trying to put yeah. our, <laughs> our protocol in plan. It was really good. Like he didn't lose weight. It was just like one kilo at the end of the marathon. We were Yeah, which I learned is, is in 2013 when I did something similar, I lost mm-hmm. a stone. And this time having this meal plan, you know, trying to get at least roughly the right grams of carb, you know, protein, everything in there, mm-hmm. breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that meant stopping for lunch as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we lost a kilo at the most, right? It was probably yeah. less. So I didn't, my weight didn't really change at all in that month, despite the amount of endurance I was doing. Yeah, we measured everything. We measured heart rate. We measured everything, everything every day. So it was very interesting to to learn. And I think we realized also that there were so many factors affecting every day. So no marathon was the same in terms of glucose levels, but we managed to do it safely. Yeah, terms things such as the temperature, when the temperature was higher, and those were the times that he had a couple of hypos when the temperature was lower and it was raining it was the best day it was was easier to run Mm -hmm. maybe every health professional might hate me for saying this but really the remarkable thing of it is that the secret was paying attention to my diabetes you know it was no different to your everyday life to that extent and my my levels were actually probably better in that month in fact I'll go on record and say they were better in that month than probably the month after or the month before because or the average month that I I had particularly on, on multiple daily injections I had at a CGM I think at that time but we were paying such close detail to what was going on with my levels in order to then make decisions mm-hmm. which is just a big you know advocate for how good technology is because yeah. you know it's only improved since then even mm-hmm. but to have that insight of what is going on in your levels okay not just that you're going low the level is low or high it's it's gonna go low you know it's on its way down or it's on its way up for us to be able to respond to that I mean that's exactly what we were doing obviously power was following the CGM in the car on her phone mm-hmm. so we had such an advantage there that we managed to manage the diabetes very well and only had three hypos in an entire month of not only running, but traveling around the country during the marathon times. We only had just the three hypos, which is insane. I've had days where I've had three hypos in mm-hmm. one day and I've not run a marathon. I've not even walked down the road barely, you know? So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it shows you that the attention to detail mm-hmm. was really the secret. And the bigger challenge is what Powell said at the start is, well, I'm an athlete first and diabetes is, is something that's coming with me in being an athlete. It's not a case of separating the two and you know the bigger challenges of, of that journey was well after I've run are we going to catch the train on time mm-hmm. or are we going to you know get to that next that we were circulating the UK and Ireland so we kind of started in like well started in Kent I think and then went around the coast and then Finish got a boat over to Ireland and a plane over to Scotland from Northern Ireland and kind of worked our way place to place where the communities were so yeah it, our bigger challenges weren't really the diabetes race. related mm-hmm. they, they, they were you know what was going on in the day with the run and with the weather or mm-hmm. yeah like a pouring hard in Pembrokeshire with rain and trying to find your way to get on track and not get lost things like that were bigger challenges perhaps than diabetes simply through keeping the eye on the diabetes that little bit extra oh that's really interesting I, I totally see where you're coming from with that as well really interesting you know like you say diabetes you two were just trying to live life <laughs> the diabetes yeah. was secondary wasn't it We've got a couple of questions but we'll start with. with the marathon if you had to just take one marathon and we didn't have all the 25 you did you know, what would be your top tips, I guess, between the two of you with the dietitian knowledge, with the strategies, with the running? What can people plan for? What do we need to think about if we're just doing the one fluid hydration? 
did you do like regular snacking or how did you sort of stop those hypos happening keep yourself running for that time yeah if you just talk about one what would you do in them well I would say one of the most important things was to have the carbs bit by bit so compared to have like because of course you can you need to make calculations of how many carbs you need per hour so it's not the best way to go at least from our experience to give like let's say if Gavin's weighs 70 70 grams of carb per hour and give them as in one time that wouldn't work because of course we're not giving insulin for that so you can expect a lot of highs and lows so we were giving like every hour the carbs in small chunks to prevent that highs and lows and then making decisions around the type of carb that you're going to use according to the glucose levels so let's say if the glucose levels were dropping very fast of course we need to have available fast acting carbs such as a glucose gel or jelly babies or something that can be absorbed in a very fast way and if the levels were stable for some time we didn't want them to kind of go up very quickly we were using more like slowly absorbed carbohydrates such as a cereal bar or fruit and of course always considering what's tolerable for for the person because it could be that you can think oh i'm gonna take for my marathon this glucogel or or this drink and i've never tried it before and then in the day of the marathon you can say oh this was very hard for my stomach and i felt bad the whole, whole marathon because i've never tried it before so it's very good to experiment even with what you're going to eat during the marathon i think that's just one but i think yeah it's a good one <laughs> yeah I mean, important could, one could be many i think for me yeah again there could be many tips that you could give and i think even going back to when i was diagnosed and asked that question about football i think the best thing for you first and foremost is to get out there Get out there and see what's going on. Keep that eye on the diabetes and see what's going on for you. And just getting out there gives you that momentum. Even if it doesn't quite go to plan, you do have that hypo, that minor hypo that you have to stop and fix. Do that and learn from it. I think that's the best start. I'd say that on a psychological level, because if you look at a marathon, you've probably got an advantage as a person with type 1 diabetes because you've already, you know what it's like to go the distance each day and then get up again and go again with this condition. And yeah, I think with a marathon, for me, as a mar- when I ran marathons, I started to get in my head this seed of doubt in the first few miles. Like you just the rhythm's not there you just something doesn't feel quite right sometimes when you start running or it's also like this voice in the back of the head saying no you're going to stop in a bit and not actually go this distance and you have to kind of have this psychological battle mm. with yourself to get over that and get going and find your pace and then once you've got that pace for me i've always found that you know that's that's when i've been at my best and I'm, I'm i'm a bit more comfortable i'm keeping that maintaining that pace i want to be at my own pace and nobody else's pace and i think there's a lot in common with diabetes in that and you know it's, it's your pace it's your body and you've got to deal with it how you feel right you know in in those moments and learn from it as you go and and keep running and that's kind of what you do with a marathon you keep going and then there's that everyone said about this dreaded wall that you'll hear marathon runners say to be honest i've not really had to face that too many times myself mainly through going at my own pace and not really over doing it most of the time there has been times where i've done that yeah i I think even then you're going to face those hurdles like with diabetes you're going to face the highs and low blood sugars but but it's okay to to pause every now and then and you know regain yourself and then go when you're ready to go again and so yeah i think there's a lot in common between the two and and diabetes is that psychological journey so yeah firstly for me it's about getting out there and as i say it's about looking after your body to get the best results for your body so i used to actually start high and then go low when i was younger because i was scared of, of knowing that it's exercise like it was I was thinking I'm going to go low here so I need to boost up all these carbs mm. right before the start and that way I should you know take a while to go low and maybe I'll complete my run by then which was obviously completely wrong I'm not saying there's any wrong or right but that wasn't the best way to do it if you want to perform at your best you need to feel at your best and I think with certainly with those 25 marathons with Powell you know the goal was to start in range which is easier said than done because you know we all want to be in range all the time but the goal was really to be in range start in range and kind of get as Powell you know just said really the 
that the balance of carbs that my body required as I needed it through the hour. So it wasn't a, a sudden, here's a whack of gels or something to spike me up and then go down. I think I was probably strongest when we were sipping the energy drinks and actually staying nicely in tune quite a lot of the time, five, six, seven millimoles. I think there's, you know, a lot, a lot of the time whilst running, I was there. And as a result of being there, I felt good. And I think feeling good just makes such a difference, whether it's running or, or any kind of hobby or talent that you're doing. So you're trying your best to be in range from the start, not to panic and obviously mm-hmm. overload on stuff and then go up. And then next thing you know, you're going down and you're doing all kinds of somersaults in your blood sugar levels. So yeah, I think for me, it's kind of just make those right decisions, the attention to detailed decisions that you have to make to stay in range and then looking after your body like any other athlete would, keeping hydrate, getting good night's sleep, which I'm a hypocrite at, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. What's a range for you then, Gavin? What would it be? What ranges would good for you? I guess for, you know, it's where you feel good. Ideally, obviously, yeah, you don't want to be like five or lower, four or five, because even though that might be a good level, there's a good chance you're going to drop pretty quick. And also you've got to consider other factors like when did you have your meal? When was how active is your insulin, bolus insulin in your body? Obviously, being on a pump, it changes things a little bit. I, I find since I've adapted there, you know, you go for a walk, you, you do tend to drop pretty quick, quicker than you would perhaps even on MDI. So it depends on what you're using to work with your diabetes. But yeah, for me, I'd, I'd probably be targeting around the seven, six to eights, maybe mm-hmm. to, as a good starting point because it's a little bit higher, but it's in range and it's it's not in a level where I'm feeling any kind of discomfort. I'm not looking to go to the toilet or whatever else, you know, mm-hmm. or having that. And when you're high, you get like a saliva in your mouth and kind of uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I'm feeling comfortable at those levels. Maybe for someone else, it's a little bit different. Maybe they're used to being, you know, around four quite often. And, and if they're eight, they might feel a bit more uncomfortable. So depends on the person. But I'd say, you know, that slightly higher side above your above your earmark is probably where you want to be, but in range. And then the goal is to try and maintain it there, which I think if you put the attention to detail, even if sometimes it does go low or high, you know, you work with that, you learn from that and it will improve in time. And I think we, you know, those marathons I did in the past that didn't always go to plan helped this particular project to go to plan. And then I was willing to listen to the advice around me as well, which perhaps in the past I wasn't so keen to do. Amazing. And I guess other than Paula, from a dietetic side and the food side, did you get any support from any medical teams and doctors? Did you have like a consultant? Was it a specialist service or was it just your normal average normal doctor? Yeah. yeah. So as soon as I decided to get on board of the challenge, I visited at least six different sports dietitians in Costa Rica. And I talked to a couple of sports dietitians here in the UK too. I asked them like, more so mainly, what do you do with, for marathon runners? I wasn't so focused on, on the diabetes at the beginning. And then as I as I said, I joined both of the things. And I, because of my book, I read a, a lot of articles and research about what to do with ultra endurance and, and everything. So I felt like I was more relaxed in that way, but not so much in the part of the how to kind of yeah calculate all the requirements and everything. So yeah, I did got a lot of support from different dietitians, but there wasn't any like specialist team or anything. I, I wasn't working here in the UK at that point. I was in Costa Rica. So so yeah, it was a little bit of a mix. And uh, Gavin, I guess, did you have any input from like your normal diabetes team? Did they, were they involved then? You know, was that something you were talking to? I don't know how good your relationship might have been with your normal team. No. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird one because I feel there is a gap. If, if I'm honest, in, in my own observation, I feel there is a gap, particularly in the UK, around paediatrics to adult care. For right now, you know, I'm at Kingston and I've got a really good adult team in Kingston Hospital. Um, obviously, I, I wasn't living there at that time, but yeah, I feel like it, it varies. But you do notice that difference, perhaps, between the, the attention, the care, the the real detail you get with the, with the paediatric teams in most cases, and then you kind of there's a big gap when you go into adult care and particularly. When 
when you're at adolescent age where you're not quite mature enough, but you're suddenly given the responsibilities, given the keys. And a lot of people, you know, that I've spoken to certainly have found that a difficult transition in space. I think there's more that we could do in the UK, certainly in that area. And yeah, for me back then, I think a lot of my years in my 20s, I actually self-managed myself as bad as that is to say. Yeah, I I didn't really find that I got much in in consultations. I got my checkups done in in the locations that I was. You know, I was more Southeast based back then. And yeah, unfortunately, I kind of had to, to learn from my past. I will say, though, that I think that there's Alistair Lum. I think he was really helpful for me way back in 2013 when I first said I'm going to do something really extreme. Everybody else was like, what? You're a bit mad. No, don't do that. I don't know if that's that's good. There's risky there. Whereas Alistair Lum was like, oh, this is exciting. And uh, <laughs> so he did. He gave me his time and I'm having a consultation with him. And even then, like he said, like, what have you done in the past? Let's hear about that. And OK, he's like, yeah, you got that right. You got that right. And he just gave me the confidence to say, yeah, this is actually possible mm-hmm. with, with diabetes as well. And, you know, gave me a few tips from there. And I think that's what you need in a health professional, no matter what it is. You know, it could be a crazy marathon guy. It could just be someone that's into art or, or travel or whatever it is. But that tone, like what Alistair gave to me as someone's like, well, yeah, this is possible. You know, this is, you, you know, your things, you know, this, you know how your body works. And, and here's a few pointers to help you out with that and kind of let the patient do the answers, particularly around that adult age group, I think works really well. And, and that certainly gave me the confidence in myself. You know, Alistair was there in 2013. And then again, I think we ran through Oxford in that 25 marathons in a month as well. Mm. So he, he was there rubbing his hands together again about the kind of craziness going on. And uh, yeah. I think the difference that it was like a project. So it was a health professional that needed to be on board throughout the whole month and mm. be in constant contact. So I think that was also a different, but I do think that is very important that what you're doing now and the mission of the BDA Sports and Diabetes that is just teaching the health professionals how to support the people with diabetes and have the knowledge to say, yes, you can do this and this is how you can do it. And I think that the slowly progressing, I think that that was one mm-hmm. difference. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean... I don't think it's bad if you weren't under I always say to people I, I think I feel like like yourselves maybe not as much as you two but I sort of embedded myself in doing food camps and supporting charities and children just because I've gotten interested in it and I really find it interesting and I think that's where the special interest in type 1 and diabetes and sport has come from because I've done the post-grad certificate in sports and exercise and then I was really interested in type 1 just as a general but yeah I think there's always a period of time where you and your diabetes don't get along or you and your team don't get along you know there's always going to be that for everyone and I think different people and it's so hard to manage diabetes type 1 day to day I don't think anyone as a healthcare professional can ever understand what you have to go through so no hats off to you guys for everything you do there's lots of things in there so much to talk about I want to go back to your book and maybe talk a bit more about YouTube's camps and these future camps you're thinking about so because writing the book that's awesome I feel like every international dietitian I've spoken to has written a book (laughs) (laughs) so yeah tell me a bit more about that so yeah i think so in costa rica when you come from a country where everything's in spanish okay and a lot of people don't speak english you need to translate all the research that is usually done in europe in the u.s to something friendly and something that healthcare professionals can understand. So I think my mission with that book was to open the door for healthcare professionals to learn about it because a lot of people struggle to sit down and read a full paper. So you can say, oh, but there's a lot of research in sports and there's a lot of people doing the work and everything. Yes, but not every healthcare professional that lives in different countries is able to understand that. So that was my main mission with that book. And also the fact that it's like easy and fast to read 
feet and it had different like algorithms of if the person that you're dealing with is going to do this type of activity and it's going to be in the, this distance of the last insulin injection so active insulin so translating everything in easy terms that people can feel more motivated to give advice towards exercise because I have this feeling of oh no this is a very complex topic so I better refer you to this person or better refer you to this other person and at the end it's a duty of every healthcare professional that works in diabetes to be able to talk about it and to be able to motivate people to do activity so yeah I think that was the main aim with that book and that book is currently uh, used in in associations all around Latin America so it's also people with diabetes uh, friendly for people with diabetes so in your camps you definitely seem to have lots of international missions of educating healthcare professionals people with diabetes which is really inspiring so yeah tell me a bit more about that and you've got plans this year haven't you for a camp in the UK yeah well we've got camp expert here in Costa Rica and what I observed as well really is that diabetes camps aren't really something that's ever really been too active over here too often maybe some like day camps things like that have happened I know Diabetes UK have a youth camp and, and they've been doing that for a few years and there are I mean there are camps but not in the way not in the American way and if you go across the, the pond you'll find Canada United States Costa Rica Latin America in total really oh I have this big agenda really of, of these camps that usually kind of overnight and, and it's a mix some of them are youth most of them are probably youth camps but yeah there's a few adult ones as well that go on and and it's really been successful across the entire continent I would say of America and it's you know it's a things that the young ones that have gone and become leaders in the future you know they, they wanted to come and volunteer and keep it going they don't want to grow up from these camps and, and they've seen diabetes in such a different way through it I think that's the most inspiring part of it and that's what I've always been about in the UK albeit without the camp side of it happening over here yeah and now that there's a team that are running you know diabetes slash league of diabetes and that's been the main agenda to put a diabetes camp on and really to target adults which I think is an interesting way to go because there are youth camps out there there are maybe more workshops that you know a lot of local NHS teams do great jobs in putting on family days and things like that and really supporting youth pediatrics whereas in adults that maybe doesn't really exist too often and yet there's a need for it if you just look on social media you're going to see this diabetes online community lots of people wanting to engage wanting to share what's going on in their lives wanting to look for some help and support using these social media channels and so I feel like the more opportunities that can come about in that vein then that's that's a great thing and so yeah to have power and you know her experience using camps and, and the team like Simran who, who obviously is trustees at the charity they're now getting behind that they're starting to pick up on that I think that's a really um, beneficial thing for the UK and something that needs to happen so yeah fingers yeah, crossed yeah. the first one's successful I think also with Lot Global we've seen that need in other countries in Europe and Middle East Africa of course Latin America so the idea of this camp is to then be like a little bit of a hub here in the UK where other people from different countries can come and our first camp in 2018 we had young people from Romania from India from Africa from different parts of the world so that they can then copy these camps and take them to their country so that's like the future goal of this camp not just do it here but replicate it in other parts of the world and yeah so the camp is going to be in Hampshire in a place called Runway's End which is like a camp outdoor activity the good thing at least for me is that we're not going to sleep in tents we're going to sleep in in actual rooms I know that's <laughs> fine yeah I, I want to be in a tent but uh, yeah I mean you never know with the weather and particularly uh, summer right, yeah so. there's going to be very good food so we don't need to cook the food the food is going to be provided and there are going to be a lot of activities outdoor activities such as kayaking archery high ropes we're going to have sessions campfire chats which is people with diabetes sharing about their experiences so it's not going to be anything formal or anything clinical but we're 
also going to learn about different aspects. And we're going to have healthcare professionals on site in case the people that are attending are not having a good experience with their medical team. Of course, we're not going to recommend anything medical or insulin adjustments or anything like that, but any general recommendations that we can give, it could be a space for them to learn. Yeah, I think there's real a different environment to talk about diabetes. And I think that's a real big factor of why that can be, can be so successful. And I certainly saw it in 2019, there was a campfire going on and it was just that platform really to open up. I think each night we had like a topic mm. about diabetes. So, you know, that got people talking, but then these personal stories just came out around a campfire and it was something mm. just so grassroots like that, that you could tell was really making these people connect and, and share something so personal in common. I mean, sometimes there were tears in, in a good way. And then sometimes there was just a whole, I mean, we had, we had, dancing. People, yeah, dancing. <laughs> we had Josanna and Apurva from India over and we had a couple of guys from Romania. So we learned how to, to move those hips a little bit differently <laughs> around the campfire. So there was just a range of, of fun and emotion and, and just that connection that, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, you don't really see elsewhere. You can't really see it elsewhere, but in an environment like that in the camp, I felt like that was really, yeah, that was really moving. Oh, amazing. Am I right in thinking that's the 21st of July till the 23rd of July? Yes. And where can people maybe find out a bit more about it or how can they follow what you two do or where are you two available on online social media? Yeah, so we have the website that is leagueofdiabetes.org. So in the website, in the events section, you can find everything about the camp. There's a frequently asked questions because some people might think, oh, I'm not very sporty or I'm not very good with, you know, with activity. Should I go? Even though you're, you say you're going to do kayaking, but it's not like you're going to be pushed to do mm-hmm. all the activities. You're going to be motivated and you're going to do them because then you're going to show you to yourself you can do more than what you think you can do. But, but yeah, it's not like you're not going to be pushed to do anything so it doesn't matter if you're sporty or not so you can find everything all the information in there the registration link and then in social media we are we have two separate social media so league of diabetes is more like the community base and then diathlete is more related to the workshops that we do in the NHS teams and topics related to sports and diabetes. Yeah. And also there's, uh, so the League of, when you've heard us talk about global side of it, so there is a League of Diabetes Global and that is our connection of just a, a free network really of like-minded support groups or organizations that have been established by people with diabetes and put on those kind of recreational events like the camps or grassroots workshops that can kind of pass education on in a, a different way, a fun way and an active way even so yeah we all kind of group together we share four times a year online a bit of a training or an update to each other in these organizations with all type one advocates representing them so it's a really powerful thing i think this yeah you get to meet people from all around the world really that i think there's about 19 odd countries maybe more in that network and we will have a whatsapp chat and everything else so we can update each other as well and that's one of the i mean our relationship is probably an example of it but you know you can have so much different you know not, not in common with other people and other parts of the world and yet diabetes has become this thing that once you you hated you didn't want and now it can actually be this thing that brings people closer together has that mutual Mm -hmm. bond that understanding and i think the more people in an an environment like a camp where that can happen or a training or a workshop you know can can have those opportunities i think the more than they start to see diabetes differently and i think that really puts people in a good place for themselves to to manage this thing with a more optimism with more encouragement around them yeah i mean 100 percent agree like even some of the camps that 
I've done for the charities that I've done, they just leave you so emotional after because you just see these conversations that never would have happened or a child who's never had anyone who's been type 1 diabetic in his school suddenly meet everyone who's got diabetes and they've never injected in public and now they're just doing it because everyone's doing it. So yeah, oh my, they're so emotional. There's so much peer support that you get from all of that. Like I can really get behind all of that. And like you were saying about the social media community online at the moment is so international and there's so much going on that I think it was interesting even when we started this group initially in 2019 just before COVID I think yeah we all met at this thing and they were like well, where can you go for healthcare information on diabetes or sports and I was like I don't think there's anything they really I don't think there's been anything for a couple of years and it's just suddenly started to really that evidence that you're talking about Paula that's been around has just started to people have got together and collaborated and now suddenly these last few years I feel like sports type one exercise really started to come out and like you say healthcare professionals are able to support more these challenges and different types of diabetes which is great but yeah fantastic thank you so much is there anything else any key messages that people with type one that you want to share with anyone about sports exercise or key messages what you'd like to say <laughs> <laughs> i think what i always like to share because that's how i kind of define diabetes in my life is that it is an opportunity in not a disease or a condition it's an opportunity for you to whatever you want to put there like to support other people to motivate other people to learn about your body so I think it's, it's really good uh, when you find that purpose on living with diabetes because then you kind of see it like as a friend and not so much as, as an enemy or or something that you want you need to deal with yeah I would say ditto uh, to that and I think for me yeah it's a case of find as I said earlier find your pace with it because everybody runs in their own different way but you're going in that same direction that you know you got your start point and your finish point and I think it's it's your goal so yeah I think the more we can make the diabetes talk connect with people the more we can provide opportunities to to bring people together to see diabetes as not this disease as such but actually this condition that you manage and the more activities go in that way then then the better and I think for the people type one they, they know that as long as they pay the attention they work with it which can be stressful at times but if they keep going through those barriers mm. they're going to get the best results for them on the long run and on and the short term so yeah keep going would be my message amazing well thank you so much i'm sure it won't be the last time we maybe get you on i feel like i still got so many questions thank you so much Mm. thank you thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you again in the next episode remember if you have enjoyed today's episode please leave us a positive review subscribe for upcoming content and follow us on social media at bda underscore sen diabetes